This morning we sang, He Shattered the Darkness. If there is a um, natural lead into our text and this sermon this morning, it will be that phrase. And it would be the question of what does that mean for us today as we live in this world as believers? I want to read you a verse from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22. If you've been reading along with us this week as we read through the Bible together as a church, we call it the story. If you haven't been or you've fallen behind, just pick up with us this week. But if you've been reading this week, you've realized it's been kind of a tough section. It's been a little depressing and a little down. I think Isaiah does a great job of summarizing this section of reading in chapter 8, verse 22. He says, And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness sounds encouraging this morning doesn't it so yeah I I will go ahead and tell you this is one of those sermons it's a little heavy it's a little hard Um, it is deep into the look of the darkness of our sin, our depravity, and the evil that is among us, around us, and a part of us. But I want to give you a few reminders before we begin. First, at the end of our journey through this darkness, we will find a great light and a great hope. But we must first come face to face with the darkness that is the context for where we find Israel, and in fairness, the darkness in our own lives. We as humans are very, very bad at assessing danger. I know you would think we naturally are, but we're not. I have nine stitches in my finger to prove it this morning. We, we are just not very good at it. Like, for example, I listen to a podcast of economists, and they always argue back and forth about a bunch of different things. And their example that they use almost like every other week to show this is that how we as a society are way more afraid of our kids being around guns than they are than we are than being around swimming pools and I I understand just stay with me for a minute statistically speaking a child is 100 times more likely to die from a swimming pool than from a gun now I'm not making a political statement I'm just just framing something for a moment if you get out of the South where all of us have guns, we probably have like five of them where we live. But I've lived out of the South a little bit, and if a parent was going to send their kid to another p- parent's house, and they found out there were guns in that house, that parent would be concerned. But if that parent found out there's a swimming pool at that house, they're like, sweet, take your swimming suit and your towel. And the reason for that is, a swimming pool isn't a weapon. No one like carries a swimming pool to like rob a convenience store with. Give me your money, you go in the pool. Nobody does that. And so what we do is we associate our fears and our fears come into emotions and we let our emotions then impact our decision making. I'll give you another example, much more close to home. You guys have been paying attention, I know you have, to all the shark attacks on the East Coast, right? So there's been all these sharks, and they're everywhere. Do you know in North Carolina alone, they've had the most shark attacks they've had in like decades. Still less than 10. Still less than 10. Like you've got a chance of like, you know, winning the lottery. The chance of you getting attacked by a shark is like one in millions. Can I tell you something? Tell that to somebody else. I'm not getting in that water. There's no way. 
Like, and if I see a fin, I am in the category of like Peter and Jesus because I'm running. It, it doesn't matter that it's necessarily not logical or it doesn't even line up. It, our fear drives our emotion, which sometimes drives our decision making. And when apart from truth can just lead us to discern things poorly. I think we do the same thing in measuring our own spiritual darkness. It's easy to look out at the sins of others as they become more and more precedent and as the culture changes and then say around us, the culture, those people around us are becoming and leading us towards spiritual darkness. I've heard a lot of that since the Supreme Court's ruling. And obviously that's not something that we affirm, that's not something that we want, but can I just tell you, our country was spiritually dark long before they made a ruling. Do you know what? I want to read you some statistics, and I'm just going to kind of pick on a couple of things for no really rhyme or reason other than they connect to the family, which is the same thing that we've been talking about with the Supreme Court ruling. The Guttemacher Institute five years ago did a major research on abortion in the United States. So this would have been 2011. What they found in 2011 is about four out of every ten unintended pregnancies in the U.S. ended in abortion. Four out of every ten. Nearly three out of every ten women in our country will have an abortion before she hits the age of 45. You say, well, that's not here. That's got to be like out in like L.A. or New York or some other place. In Tennessee in that same year, in the state where we live and call home, there were 115,000 pregnancies in 2011. 15% resulted in induced abortions. Of the women who have these abortions, listen, 73% said and claimed to have a religious affiliation. Stay with me for just a minute. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. In spite of those statistics, everything that we know and everything that we can measure, when you go back and look at the research, Abortion has been declining since the 80s in our country, drastically. In the 80s, there was almost double the abortions that there are today. What about adultery? What about divorce? Does does really the Supreme Court's ruling somehow make our country any more spiritually dark, or does it harm our families any more than the adultery and the divorce within our own families? Where every 36 seconds in our country... There is another divorce. We're roughly 41%, and it goes back and forth. That statistic's argued a little bit, but it's roughly around 40% of every first marriage will end in divorce. And where if I ask, even within our own church, and I wouldn't do this, I promise, but if I ask how many of you have firsthand experienced a divorce as a child or as a spouse, half of us would probably raise our hand. Now listen to me very carefully. Those divorce rates have been on decline since their peak in the late 70s. We're talking about things and we're pushing for liberty for things and things that were once in the darkness are now coming to light. I just wanted you to know we have our own spiritual darkness. But I, wanted, I didn't say that to make us feel bad. And listen, if you're in this room and that's, that's you, 
You've made one of those decisions. You've had to live through that. I, I, I don't want to back away from acknowledging that adultery and abortion and these things are sin. But I do want you to know that in Jesus, you have victory. You have victory. This is not the place where you come and you feel bad. This is the place where you celebrate what Jesus has done for you. So stay with me for just a moment because I want you to see that our temptation when we look back to Israel is to look back at them and see the darkness that they're in and see it as somehow we're removed from that. As somehow that's separate from us. As somehow we're not quite as depraved and as wicked and as sinful. And that's them. And we are tempted to see ourselves when we look at sections like this and we look at the world around us. Listen as the victim, the victim of the evil that is around us. Listen, church, we may be people under correction, or we may be a remnant, Old Testament term, light, New Testament term. But we are not the victim. We are not the victim. In Jesus, we are the victors, regardless of the darkness that surrounds us. And part of living in this world is to understand what it means to be a remnant, what it means to be light, and how to focus our attention on Jesus and not the darkness. And that's what I hope we get to see this morning. So with this in mind, let's turn our attention to the thick darkness that is overtaking Israel. The kings of Israel have continued to turn away from God. We have walked through the story. We have seen Israel, once one nation, divide. There is now Judah. That's where Jerusalem and the temple is. It's a smaller area, but um, a more significant area. They've kind of become their own nation. And Israel, everything else, has become their own nation. They're kind of headquartered in Samaria. And Israel and Judah have even been fighting among themselves. They've almost been in a civil war as it goes through. And the kings have just turned more and more evil over time, especially the kings of Israel. It's getting so bad in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3, it says, But he, and it's talking about Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, the place where it's been a little bit better than Israel. It says of King Ahaz, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, meaning the wickedness of those other kings. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed his own son. This is the king of Judah. This is the king who oversees the people of God, who... Listen, on his very watch and his very property is is temple. And he's sacrificing his sons. Pekah, the king of Israel, who was a sellout and sold Israel out repeatedly and was an awful king, is killed um, by uh, Hoshea, who will end up being the last king of Israel, divided Israel. And because... God is going to come to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9-8, and he says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Now, Isaiah and 2 Kings are overlapping right here. Isaiah is a prophet during the time of Israel's fall. 
And so Isaiah is prophesying to Israel. He is telling them what is coming and what will happen and how it will happen. Meanwhile, the historical account is found for us in 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings 17.6, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away. Samaria would be like the headquarters. It took them three years of a siege and a war, but eventually they would overthrow Israel. Israel would be no more. A vast majority of God's people, his uh, people that he made a promise with Abraham uh, way back when, have now been dispersed and taken captive. Their land is no longer their own. This is a dark time. It's not fun. It's not like Joshua when God's people are living in prosperity and conquering. Instead, they are being defeated and being thrust into thick darkness. I think this morning there are some truths that we can take away from this section of Scripture that can help us this morning. They are truths that transcend beyond Israel and hold true for us and relevant for us today. And that would, is what I'd ask for you just to make your attention for the next few moments. The first one, God will be your savior or destruction. He will be your refuge or he will be your harm. Now, if I said God will be your salvation, many of you go, yeah. If God will be your refuge, you say, I get it. But if I told you that God would be the very rock that you trip over, that might make you think a little differently. But this is true, and this is what we see. In Isaiah chapter 8, we'll spend a little time here. In Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet proclaims both the coming fall of Israel, the nation, but also while doing so, he proclaims the authority of God and his ultimate victory. So to Israel's enemies, he tells them whatever they attempt, whatever they shall say, shall come to nothing in the end. It's kind of like a way of saying, you may feel like you've won the battle, but you will lose the war. Verse 10, he says, take counsel together, talking to Israel's enemies. Come together, plan together, put the best of your wisdom together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For God is with us. It will not stand, for God is with us. It reminds us of Romans 8.31 that tells us, listen, this this is such a powerful verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's that thought. And so the question that we should ask is, who is the us? Because I want to be one of the us, right? Who is the us? Well, the us in verse 10 isn't even really there. It's not even present in the Hebrew. There's no word that says for us there. It's, it's just not present. It's actually just implied by the very name of God. See, you and I are not the subject. We're just the implication. The actual word there is just El or God, but think of it like Emmanuel. It's a name for God that means, listen, God who is with us. God with us. And so the translation, for God is with us. 
But what I want you to see is the, the verse would actually read and just end because of God. Because of God. But because of who He is, we are implied. So the us is not the nation of Israel. Stay with me. It's not the nation of Israel. It's not the organization or the government. The us that is here is the remnant. It is the remnant that Isaiah is talking to. So it's not just the larger nation of Israel. It is those people, listen, who God is with. Belong to him. You say, how do you see that? Let's keep reading in verse 11. Isaiah is warned, don't walk in the way of this people. Okay. And verse 13 through 15 builds on the thought to separate the remnant from this people. Now listen, this is a hard truth. Both the remnant and the lost will walk through the same thick darkness. So if you were expecting some kind of a, like a prosperity, if you're with Jesus, he's going to make your life great. Everything you experience, everything you feel, your job, everything's going to work out. He just wants you to be happy. I'm just going to tell you, that's not the way it's going to work. Even the remnant will walk through thick darkness. That's, that's going to be part of being the light we are called to be. And so in verse 13, it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. In other words, perfect. Perfect. Holiness is a standard of God that is perfect, that no one else matches to. He is the supreme standard. Perfection. So you shall honor him as the only one who is perfect. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Not the darkness, not the circumstances that are around you, but him. And he will become a sanctuary to those people whose focus is on him, to those people, listen, who are with him, he becomes a sanctuary. But listen to the other side. And a stone of offense. A rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. In other words, in this context, both Israel and Judah, let's say all of God's people. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. Remember, we're talking about a remnant. I want you to keep seeing this. We're talking to the remnant. If many stumble... Listen, some don't. Remember, some are in the sanctuary. There's a remnant. Some have found peace. But many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. God will either be our place of refuge or the place, that the very thing that we trip over. Listen. He will either be the rock of our salvation or he will be the rock that we stumble over. But he is present. He is there and we will experience him. And so to the remnant who focus on God, not on the darkness of the circumstances, let your awe, your joy, your fear 
your hope be found in him, and he will become to you a sanctuary, a place of refuge and peace, a harbor where you can rest your soul from the storm that is around you. But to the lost, whose fear is elsewhere, whose pursuit is elsewhere, he will become the obstacle that they trip over. He will be the reality they cannot overcome. The New Testament picks up on this throughout the New Testament. Two really famous passages, one in Romans chapter 9. I want to read it to you. Paul is speaking to this. Paul writes in verse 30, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Listen to how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And if there's one section of Scripture that I just would just kind of pray over us today, it's this section. Listen to what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Listen, what's that mean? Emmanuel, God is with you. You were once not a people. Now you are God's people because God is with you. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The attitude we take toward God will determine what aspect of God we experience. To those who accept his truths, who take position in him, he becomes salvation a refuge from all darkness, a peace that will surpass any circumstance that life can bring upon them. But to those who do not abide in him, he will become the stone they trip over. A theologian said it this way. I know I'm doing a lot of reading. Stay with me. He does not change, talking about God. Only our attitude determines how we experience him. Those who make a place for him discover that he has, in fact, made a place for them. They know that what happens to them comes from the one who is both all-powerful 
and good. And in that certainty, in this reality, they can accept and apply whatever comes to them with confidence and contentment. Think of Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things. Contentment. Why? Because of Christ. Because of the way we view him. He goes on and he says, those who will not make a place for him will keep colliding with him and tripping over him. For he is there, present, whether they acknowledge him or not. Because he is a fact of which their hypothesis does not take account. Their experience will keep failing. And he will be the cause of it. Now listen, not because God is vindictive and he's just out to get you. But simply because he is. He is. And they are trying to live as if he were not. He is the elephant that is in the room that is not leaving. And he will either be the place that you take sanctuary in, or he will be the very reality that will cause you to fail again and again and again. Because he is the truth that will not change. He is present. God is. He has made himself known. And he is the rock of our salvation or the rock that you will trip over. I want you to notice two other things from this section really quick. First is that compromise is rejection. You say, why is all this stuff happening to Israel? 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, it says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, listen, and had feared other gods. It wasn't that they were just completely evil. It was that they compromised. If you would have asked them who is their God, they would have told you Yahweh, God of Abraham, God of Jacob. But if you would have asked them, well, what's that statue in your yard? Oh, that's Baal. He helps it rain. They just begin to compromise. It was God plus something else all the time. And as a result, they really didn't worship God. They really didn't know him. This goes on, and the people who are taken captive, and as the Assyrians bring in more people to take over Samaria, it is reported in in verse 33 how they chose to live. Listen, it says, verse 33, So they feared the Lord. That's good. But also served their own gods. After the manner of the nations from among whom they had carried away. Compromise is rejection. If you're here and you think, man, I'm, I'm living good enough. You know, I, I kind of believe in Jesus. I, you know, I mean, it's as good as anything else. I want you to understand that is not saving faith in the gospel. The third thing I want us to see is why, in a philosophical sense, is all this happening? Why would, why would all this work together? And I just want to remind you that everything points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. So in the midst of God speaking prophecy and letting them know of the fall that is in front of them, in the very midst of that, the love of God is proclaiming their hope. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, something we sang this morning. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the midst of this, there's a prophecy of a Savior, one who will do what they cannot. The Son of God. And years later, as they look into the New Testament, God will have loved us so much that He will have sent His only Son who will live a perfect life in the midst of great darkness, making the Father his singular focus, and yet in his perfection he will die, not because of a death he merited, but because he will take the death that was for us. And he will conquer that death, and he will raise on the third day, and he will offer to us the hope of adoption and reconciliation into the family of God through faith. This is the gospel. This is for us. This is our hope. Everything points to it. And so in the end, when we journey through the darkness, what will be our response? Isaiah gives us that too in chapter 12. It's a song he writes. Listen, think about everything. Think about your home is gone. You've watched your friends, maybe your parents, maybe your kids be murdered. You've seen your family separated as they've been taken captive and shipped off in different directions. Listen to the response. Verse 1, chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Are you paying attention to the switch? I'm not complaining about the darkness anymore, am I? I'm talking about my salvation. I'm talking about the goodness of God. My focus has changed. And so I will praise Him. I will proclaim that His name is exalted. I will sing praises to the Lord, for for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. No longer are they spectators in some divine sovereign act of God. Listen, they are participants. The remnant understands that their place in the darkness, listen, isn't punishment their place in the darkness isn't isolation it's not out of the control of god it is to worship praise and make much of god as an ambassador as light in the midst of the darkness it's even captured in our old testament it's there to be light and so a few life applications if you're kind of struggling to put all this together and what do I do with this? 
I would challenge you to take sanctuary in God, first in his son, first in his son. He will be your salvation or your stone of offense. And if you have never taken the moment to place saving faith in Jesus, I would challenge you to do that right now. Just where you're seated, even as I talk, you, you can just bow your head, close your eyes, and begin to pray. Acknowledge that your sin has separated you from God and that he loved you enough to send his son to bring you back into his family, to reconcile you. And with faith, claim him, his work as your own. Take sanctuary in God's love, in God's love. In other words, rest in him alone and set aside compromise. Stop trying to fill your satisfaction and your joy in all the other places around us. Stop getting caught up in the darkness. And as a spouse is to look into the eyes of their spouse and say, you are the only one. Make God the love of your life and rest in his love for you. Lastly, take sanctuary in the sovereignty of God, understanding and trusting that he will work together all things for our good and that no matter what storm or what circumstance we find ourselves in, we will sing like Isaiah at the end, praise be to God. You see, that's hard. It is hard. We so often like to refer to um, blessings as like the promotion at work or when the good things happen to us. Kind of one of those preacher definitions of blessings is blessing is when God directs his love on you. And we like to think of that always in some season of gain, not when we lose our job, not when the darkness around us seems thick. But I would ask you a question. When have you grown the closest to the Lord? When have you felt his presence most? Every good thing comes from God. We can rest in him in every aspect of our life, whether it is gain or whether it is loss. Paul speaks to this in the New Testament when he talks about contentment. I mentioned Philippians 4, verse 11, he says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The word content means find it well or find it pleasing to my soul. He goes on in verse 12, and he calls it a secret. He says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is God speaking to Paul. Therefore, I will boast, Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Those are not good things to say, I find it well. But if, as a believer, like Paul, we can rest in the love and the sovereignty of God, why not? He's all-powerful, and he's so good. And so why would I be anything other than the content and where he would have me? So some I know struggle, and we seek contentment in the wrong things, things that are either altogether apart from God or God plus something else. 
And I would just challenge you this morning to seek sanctuary in God's Son, His love, His sovereignty. And see the example that is here in the fall of Israel and Isaiah's prophecy to the remnant who will live in such darkness. I close with a verse as the team comes up to play. And as they make their way up, I want you to hear this verse. I don't want you to just check out, don't get busy just yet. Hear this verse. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, it was wise according to God. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. We couldn't just figure it out on our own. It was wise to God because we did not have the wisdom to get to him. Listen. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and follies to Gentile, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God. He, listen, is the rock of our salvation. This morning, church, there is so much for us to be distracted by. We live in a world that has more distraction than it's ever had before. Run, run. the sanctuary that is our God. Would you bow your head? We're going to sing a song of response. During this time, I would just challenge you. Talk to the Lord. You may have never prayed a day in your life, but may today be the day you place saving faith in Christ. May today be the day that you proclaim you are my God and your son is my salvation. You may be here and you may be in Christ and you are pursuing the secret that Paul talks about, the resting in that abiding relationship, the love and the sovereignty of God that you would be able to say, I am content. Talk to the Lord. Worship him and find sanctuary in him this morning. May we close with a song of praise and a song of worship, understanding that He and He alone is the one true God.